but you know what? He was so good that you would enjoy watching him practice. He had agility like you wouldn't believe. And it seemed like he could stretch forever, like Plastic Man. You couldn't help but say, I want one of those. Where are we going to get one of those? We don't have them over here, so you have to go over there. And that's when the floodgates opened, and they start coming over in droves. That voice right there belongs to Jerry McNamara, the GM of the Leafs from 1981 to 1988. He's the guy who drafted Wendell Clark and Vincent Damfus. But the most remarkable moment of his career is something that happened almost a decade before he took over managing the club. That's when Jerry, formerly a minor league goalie in the Leafs organization, who'd only gotten to play seven games in the NHL, was called away from a job distributing hockey pants and gloves for Winwell, and was sent on a mission that not only changed his life, but the game itself. Perhaps more than any other single event in the last 45 years. My wife Jean said that Jim Gregory had called. Something about a scouting job. December 27th, 72, I left. I got to Sweden. I had the whole of Sweden by myself. There wasn't another scout there. And that's why I look back at it and I say, you know what? Maybe I'm the only one that thinks this, but that was a historic trip because it changed the face of hockey. Next to the MLS, today's NHL is the most international major pro sport in North America. Check this, in 2017-18, the league consisted of 445 Canadian players, 270 Americans, 98 Swedes, 42 Finns, 39 Russians, 37 Czechs, and even one Australian in the case of Nathan Walker. But that wasn't always the case. In 1971, 25 Leafs of the 26-person roster were Canadians. The 26, well, he was from Minnesota. The league was a monoculture in every sense of the word. How the NHL opened itself up to the world is a story we're going to look at today. A story about disruptive power of capitalist competition, tectonic changes in international politics, and one truly exceptional once-in-a-generation athlete, the King, Boryasami. I'm Scotty Willits, and this is Least Forever. So a big part of telling this story is about capturing the mood of the 1970s. And nothing evokes that era like the best of the music that defined it. Tracks you're hearing in this episode like LaGrange by ZZ Top and Break On Through by The Doors still get the blood going like nothing else. That's why they're still played in-game at Scotiabank Arena and why they still fuel Leafs Nation. To hear them in other great anthems, check out the Blue and White Classics playlist and all of the official Toronto Maple Leafs playlists exclusively on Apple Music or the Leafs app. To Swedish hockey players, Borja Salmin is a trailblazer, the guy who made their careers in the NHL even a possibility. A few weeks ago, I popped down to the Leafs locker room to talk with Rasmus Sandin, the Swedish D-man now with the Marlies, about Salmin's influence. Well, I just know he always like gave his all uh, to the team. He was a tough guy. He, uh, well, he was battling the whole time and wanted the best for his team. And then I got to meet up with him for a lunch last summer, so uh, that, was, uh, that was really cool. The greatest guy ever, so... 
The story of Boya Samin is well known, but for those who weren't there, who didn't live it, either as a fan or as a central figure, well, our conception of it, it's all kind of surfaces, right? Those who didn't live through the man's arrival in Toronto, didn't see him play in person, well, we're incapable of comparing what the NHL was like before and then after him. We don't really get what made Samin and his discovery so important. So for that reason, our producer, Paul Matthews, went out into the field to bring this story back to life for us. Paul, how you doing, buddy? I'm good, man. How are you? Good. I want to talk more about Boya Samin, the man. We're lucky enough that we work with all of the Toronto Maple Leaf alumni, and I got to be honest with you, ninety-nine point nine percent of them are the nicest people in the world, except for Al Iafredi, who <laughs> he's a horrible man, consistently horrible gives man. me nuggies every time I see him. Um, no, I love you, Al. But when you see Barrio, he's for for his age, he's got tons of energy. He's always smiling. He's also the fittest man. Yeah, right. Like he is. A lot of a lot of guys, and this isn't speaking any ill of anyone. You know, age does things to people. Boris Saming looks like he's like preserved in amber. He does, right? Like he had an underwear line for yeah, a long yeah, time yeah. in Sweden, and I, like I think he was Skates very happy. Yeah. yeah, he was very happy to like pose in his own underwear. <laughs> like he's he's just a very fit guy, and he was that from the beginning. Yeah. And the thing that I love about seeing him too is is just that he's when he comes back to Toronto, which he does usually about every once a year. year? Once, yeah, 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 frequently. He's just so happy about his time here because. To him, it was nothing he would have ever dreamed of when he was growing up, that he was able to come here, play with this organization, do what he was able to do to the sport of hockey is still, I think, to him, like a bit of a miracle. A hundred percent. But technically, Paul, he wasn't the first Swede, right? No, no, no. So there, there had been a few. The first was in the late 60s. A guy named Ulf Sterner comes over from Sweden, but he only plays five games for the Rangers and then and then he's out. They mm-hmm. didn't think his skating was good enough. He wasn't tough enough. No. The LA Kings had a star named Uta Wading who the L.A. commentators couldn't pronounce his name, so they just called him Whitey. They just gave up. Yeah, yeah. they just said, uh, what is this? And with L.A. hockey fans, it, it, they, they really needed matter. to make it very simple. Yeah. Whitey, Whitey Whiting. That's his name, Whitey Whiting. Yeah. But both of those players didn't change the fundamental perception of this chicken Swede, this idea that that Canadian hockey fans and Canadian hockey brass had that somehow these incredibly talented, good skating players just didn't have the grit you know, the grit. Yeah. And um, and Boris Samin changes that. And so what we're getting into in this story is really a time where two fundamental myths in Canadian hockey are shattered. The first one is, in 1972, the Russians play the Canadians. The Canadians are supposed to dust them. Supposed to kill them. It goes to eight games. They come within a minute of losing. Mm-hmm. So first myth to go. Canadians have a unique hold on hockey. We get the sport better than everybody else. That's not true. And then... A little bit later on, Boris Salmon comes to the NHL and suddenly this idea that though other people might be able to play well, though other people might be able to skate well, no one has the grit we do. Mm-hmm. And the grit is like is the thing that allows us to win in the last 40 seconds of the Summit Series game, right? It's the it's the heart. And Boris Salmon comes in and is just like categorically no. I wonder how much he put on his own shoulders that he had to define that for an entire nation, that he had to prove to everybody that this is the way we can play in Sweden. It's a really interesting question, and I think, and 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 I'm I'm speaking for him here. Yeah. And I think when you hear him in the in this in this episode, you're gonna you're gonna come away with a similar idea. I don't think he thinks about it. Like I don't think he thought about it that way. I think it's just a product of where he was born, where he played, how he grew up, and what he wanted to do. I think it's just him. He didn't. He wasn't trying to be anybody. He wasn't trying to represent a nation. He was literally playing hockey the way he grew up playing hockey in this tiny little town in in Lapland. And it just so happened that that was exactly the type of, of hockey that the NHL actually needed. Yeah. I think you're going to really like the story. Cool. 
all of the classic rock tunes you heard in today's episode, or you can hear them on the Blue and White Classics playlist, one of five official playlists for the Toronto Maple Leafs available on Apple Music and, of course, the Leafs app. To revisit all the songs you've heard today, classics from Led Zeppelin, The Doors, and ZZ Top, and to explore more great tunes, make sure you go and check these amazing playlists out. Boreas Somming's arrival in the NHL was a lightning strike. But to understand why, you actually have to go back to 1972. In fact, even further, to the ground that was already in place when he came. You see, in 1967, the league expands from six teams to 12. In 1970, it adds two more. Then in 72, two more. Expansion dilutes the talent base. There's now more demand and more competition for a very, very small pool of players. That means the pool, by necessity, needed to get bigger. In 1969, when Jim Gregory becomes the GM of the Leafs, one of the first things he sets out to do is build out his scouting roster. To Gregory, it was clear. Toronto needed to go from having arguably the best feeder program in the league to having the best scouting program. Then. In the summer of 1972, Gregory gets a ridiculous stroke of luck. His head coach, John McClellan, and his head scout, Bob Davidson, get chosen by Hockey Canada to be the only two scouts who get to go and watch the Soviets prepare for the Summit Series. Now, for those who don't know, the Summit Series is a defining moment in the history of hockey. It's the West against the East, capitalism against communism, the NHL's best players against the amateurs playing inside of the Soviet system, and they had never played against each other before. The tournament is set up for the end of the summer. Eight games in total, four games in Canada, four games in the Soviet Union. There was an expectation, maybe, that the Soviets would make us eat one game, but there was no way it was going to be any more than that. The conception that it would go down to the wire? Inconceivable. But that is not how things played out. Game one, we lose, 7-3. Game two, Maple Leaf Gardens, we win 4-1, but then we tie 4-4 in Winnipeg the next game. The last game on Canadian soil in Vancouver, the Soviets beat us 5-3. Then the series moves to Moscow. Game five, USSR five, Canada four. We win the next one, and the next, and then need to come out of game eight with a win. It's 5-5 with under a minute to go. If the game ends in a tie, Canada will lose on aggregate. That's when, with seconds ticking down, Paul Henderson, a Team Canada forward, takes to the ice and does this. Canada's sixth goal. 
five. Eight seconds. And better. A long shot by Gusev. Right and played it back to the goal. Shaking Team Canada, obviously elated, the Russians dejected, and I must say, Foster, is that both these teams played so well, it's a shame that anybody had to lose, but I can't say enough about Team Canada. It was uphill right from the second... The goal that everyone remembers, as Gord Downey said. Team Canada wins, grasping victory from the jaws of defeat. Canada is elated. 80,000 people are at Nathan Phillips Square in Toronto to meet the team upon its return. But we're chastened, too. Because, well, our national identity was, and still kind of is, wrapped up in our performance of this silly game we love. We recognize that they're almost better than us. And maybe on another day, Henderson doesn't get that second swipe at the puck. And we don't win. And we're not better. Stephen Cole is the author of Hockey Night Fever. Mullets, mayhem, and hockey's coming of age in the 1970s. Nobody knows more about how the landscape of the game was changing back then than Stephen. We learned that it was no longer our game, exclusively our game. There was an expectation that we would go in and they would maybe eat one. There was a Toronto, a, a Toronto sportscaster who said he would eat the newspaper if the Soviets won, and he was he he was shown in Young Street eating with the Russian ambassador. It was a big comeuppance, like, oh, oh my God, these, they're, they're, they're communists and they're, and they're great. And they're such skilled skaters. The one lingering memory as a shocked schoolboy that I had was the Canadians chasing the Russians in the third period. I think that game ended 7-3 for the Russians and the Canadians were yelling and screaming and the Russian guy just took his hockey stick and pointed it at the scoreboard. And it was just, I felt, a, a scalding humiliation. Like 10 million other Canadians, Jerry McNamara followed every up and down of that series on TV. You remember Jerry McNamara? He's the scout who finds Boria Salming. You heard from him earlier in the show, and at this point in our story, he's driving around North America with a car full of hockey equipment. He's basically hockey equipment Santa, delivering stuff for Winwell. He's just retired from playing minor hockey, and he's trying to figure out what his next move is. He pulls into a hotel in Sudbury, he sits down, maybe opens a cold beer, and he phones home to his wife. And that's when his whole life changed. My wife, Jean, said that Jim Gregory had called. Something about a scouting job. Oh, my heart started to pump. And I said, wow. And so anyway, I uh, went to the gardens and talked to Jim and Johnny McClellan. And he offered me a scouting job. He was going to give me call a special assignment scout. What did Jim tell you about what this special assignment scouting job was going to be? Did he say anything? He send me anywhere. Anywhere? Yeah.
people are looking at European players in a new way. But the Iron Curtain is drawn shut. No scouts are going to be going into the Soviet Union. So, the next best thing? How about that team that Canada played against to train before going to Moscow? That's right, Sweden. So just go back to when you, when you get off the plane in Stockholm, when you're just walking around the city, did it feel like a North American city? Did it, what, what were your first impressions, especially as someone who'd never been to, to Europe before, what were your first impressions just of it as a place? Old, streets are narrower, the buildings are drab, but the people were nice, really nice. Every, every bit along the way, if I asked them anything, how do you get here, how do you get there, they'd explain it to you. And I enjoyed every bit of it while I was there. Jerry's mission, if he chose to accept it, was to go check out a goalie named Kurt Larson. Jimmy wanted me to go and look at him and see what I thought. I just thought that our goaltending, he wouldn't improve our goaltending. He's good, but he wouldn't improve our goaltending. So I told him that. In the end, Jerry wasn't too impressed. But rather than hop on the first flight home, he recognized an opportunity. And I talked to people and I'd ask them, who are the best players? And of course, Salming and Hammerstrong's name come up. In a lot of ways, this is a story about luck. It just so happened at exactly the time that Jerry was in Sweden, the team he'd played on the year before, the Barry Flyers, on a Christmas tour around Europe. He decides he's going to go see his old buddies, maybe watch them play. Guess what team they're playing that night? Brinas. And who's on that team? Boreas Salming and Inga Hammerstrom. Now, some background. Boreas Salming, the great Swede who changed the face of hockey, was born in a tiny little town of Karuna. Lapland. Snow, reindeer, an institute of space science, and hockey. But absolutely no conception of what the NHL is. We got a chance to ask him about it the other day. I gave him a call as he was making his rounds around Stockholm. Well, uh, I grew up in Kiruna, which is the northern uh, town of Sweden. It's above the Arctic Circle, and uh, it's a lot, a lot of snow and a lot of ice there, so uh, long winters. So, you know, obviously I was going to play hockey. And you and your brother both played, right? Yes. Well, my brother was four years older, so uh, he uh, actually, I got his skates when he, they got too small for him. So when I was six years old, I, I got his old skates. And how much of a sense of international hockey did you have at that time? Did you have dreams of just playing in the Swedish Elite League? Or, or did you know about the NHL? Did you know about or the idea of playing at the Olympics on a big world stage at that time? We didn't have TV up in our city. So <laughs> I didn't know nothing about National Hockey League or, or Swedish Hockey League. As Borea explained it to me, all he wanted to do when he was a kid was to follow his older brother, Stieg. Whatever Stieg was doing, he wanted to do. And Stieg was playing hockey. Obviously, this is the kind of thing that amazing, gifted people say all the time. I'd never even planned on it. I just wanted to play. It never even occurred to me I'd be good enough. But in Borea's case, given his background, I feel like it's actually kind of got to be true. He was just a guy who grew up playing and loving hockey. From a town probably quite a bit like Jerry McNamara's hometown of Falconbridge. And by 1972, Borea had managed to get himself to Brinas by just following his brother. And Brinas, it seems, was a pretty good team. Here's Jerry again. When I went to see the games there, they weren't very exciting, but great skill, skating and skill. 
bigger rinks, more room to negotiate, and didn't have to worry about body check and her stuff like that. There wasn't any of it. But the Swede, the Swedish team that I saw play, Brinus, Borja's team, they played against a tough team because I played with those guys. They were tough. And they gave it to them. And because everybody went over there with the mentality, ah, we'll knock these guys around. They're afraid. But Borja wasn't afraid. That told me a lot about him. The other thing was that Inga scored five goals. In that game? In that game. And Borja scored two goals. And I think they won eight-something. And Borja got into a squabble with the referee, and I think he shoved him. And, of course, he got thrown out of the game. And there's about two minutes left to play in the game. So anyhow, he went by me. And as soon as he went by me, I said, I got to go. And so I followed Boyer around. He went to the door, through the door with the trainer, closed the door. I rapped on the door. And the trainer came to the door, and I said, I'd like to speak with Boyer. And Boyer heard me say that, and he said to the trainer, get out. So the trainer left the room, and I said, Boyer, you can play in the National Hockey League if any interest. And he, and he asked him first if he could speak English. He said, a little bit. I didn't know too much English, so uh, he asked me if I want to play, come over and play hockey in, in, in Canada. And, of course, I understood Canada, so I said yes. Then he gave, he gave me his card. I looked at that card when he walked away, and it said, you know, Jerry Mack to my Toronto Maple Leafs. Wow. He wanted me to come over and play hockey in, in Canada. A few days later, Borja Somming and Inga Hammerstrom are placed on the negotiation list, meaning that no other NHL teams could approach them. They were secured. But in reality, there was no need for security. No other NHL scouts were in Sweden. But in a year, that, like so much else in the hockey world, would completely change. The instant Somming and Hammerstrom get put on the negotiation list, there were doubters. Inside the organization and out. Salming and Hammerstrom knew that, and that's why that summer, they worked harder than they ever had in their lives. In the summer, we practiced really, really hard, like, you know, all summer long, you know, uh, and then we, we skated with the uh, so for two, three weeks before we came over, so we were really in good shape. You were probably in better shape than a lot of the Leafs were. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but, but I remember... When we came, then they told us, you guys can go out and skate a bit, you know, because nobody's on the ice. Everybody was like from the from the team, like the management and everybody. They were really interested to see because a lot of those guys hadn't seen us play or skate. So we knew that when we saw that they were sitting up there, Jerry and, and Jimmy was up there and, and Harold was up there. And we said, oh my God, let's show them. <laughs> <laughs> so we skated, we skated like crazy, like crazy, and we're shooting the pack and everything like that. And I remember that Jerry said to me afterwards, long time afterwards, that they were so impressed by us. So, And that's what we wanted to. So, Was there ever any part of you that worried that maybe you were wrong? No. No, as a matter of fact, I told Johnny McClellan, I said, Salmi's going to be a superstar in the National Hockey League. That's how good he is. When they skated out on the ice at training camp, 
And this was before the coaches were on, I think. They just all got together and they used the garden's ice. Jaws dropped when they saw these guys come out, when they saw what they had. And, and no, there was no question in my mind at all. Um, so it wasn't that you're a genius. It wasn't that you went and no, you saw I was, it. No, I was no genius. I was lucky. I, was, I struck it rich. Uh, very few people have a chance to uncover a player like Boy Salmi. Stephen Cole was just a teenager in 1972, and he remembers watching Salming's first season like it was yesterday. The other thing about Salming, he was fit. I mean, he could play 30 minutes. The other Leafs weren't as nearly as fit. You could tell that he was the fittest guy on the ice. He just skated forever, uh, and he was weightless, it seemed. Uh, and he was, you know, he was dogged, and he just, he, he was determined. You always knew where he was on the ice because he was wearing a helmet. I mean, that's something that people might not appreciate now, but there, there, there weren't too many, you know, players wearing helmets in, in 70, 73. There was an, uh, an air of sadness about him, and we knew that he'd lost his father when he was a, a young boy. There probably was, in some circles, uh, you know, the idea that he was replacing all Canadian kids might have seemed like an affront. But the city took to him. He was pretty easy guy to like. You know, and it was a veteran team, and he was 22, but he looked like he might have been 16, 17. Right. In Somming's first NHL game, he was dominant, by far the best person on the ice. In our world, that means you get the first star. In his next game, famously against the Broad Street Bullies, the Pugilists from Philadelphia, the Flyers, Borea gets in a tangle with Man Mountain Dave the Hammer Schultz and survives. And uh, my first fight was with Dave Schultz uh, in the second period, or first period. And uh, that was amazing. I can't remember who sat beside me in the dressing room. So when I came in after the fight or uh, after the period, they were sitting down. And everybody said, did you know who, who he was? And I said, no. Boy, he had great fight and everything. I, and I usually I used to say I was holding on for my life. But, but I, I did pretty good. Somebody said... I was more a Canadian than uh, the Canadians. To so many fans, Borea was more Canadian than the Canadians. And there was no member of that Leafs team more archetypically Canadian than Captain Dave Keon. A bit of an intimidating gentleman for an incoming rookie with little English. But Keon instantly asked Borea to take the empty seat next to him in the locker room. A gesture that did not go unnoticed by the young Swede. Beside uh, Davy Keon, there was uh, there was an empty spot. So so Davy told the trainer, "said Tell that Swedish guy he's going to sit beside me." And then he told me afterwards that he's, he wanted me there because I was quiet. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's a bit of a quiet guy himself. <laughs> Davy Keon, he gave me a, a thing that I still have. It's a Madonna. Madonna. Uh, he gave me that. He said, "Listen, this is gonna gonna really take care of you and keep it really close to you." And I have that in my passport at all times, and I still have the, have it left. So that was a nice thing. That, and that, that, that meant a lot, you know, when he gave it to me. And he was the captain of the team, 
and uh, and all the guys they were nice. They they were fantastic. Borea became a star overnight, and that meant that when the team went on the road, he was targeted. The name of the game became "Track the Chicken Sweet in the Dorky Helmet." See if we can break him. Players not only attract extra media coverage, and all-stars such as Borea automatically attracts extra coverage on the ice too. And quite frequently, players of lesser skill resort to dubious tactics to stop the stick-handling sweep. In Toronto, I had no problem. Nobody, nobody said anything bad like to me or anything. But of course, like in other cities, other teams, they hated me. You know, like in Philly, they they were screaming when we walked in. I knew, I talked to, to Bobby Clark, you know, after at the Hall of Fame, and he, he came over to me and talked to me, and he said, listen, Borea, but yes, you know, we were not the guys that like, wanted to kill you. That was their coach. He said, he told us, kill him, and, you know, you could do whatever you want. You know, fucking take him out of the hockey. They want to get me out of the game. Jerry watched it all happen. The league was tough in the 70s, but the Broad Street bullies were the worst. Yeah, the bullies. He came in after the game and his, and his body looked like a pincushion. Spear, spear, spear. But he never gave an inch. Like he gave it back, tried to give it back. Didn't, you know, if they come running at him, he didn't flinch. He, got, he went about his business trying to do his job. Do you uh, think he got it worse? No question. No question. They were all over him. He was our best player. Was it just because he was our best player? Like, do you think at, at any level he got it worse in the NHL because he was an outsider? Maybe initially, but he got out of respect. Just shut him down, we shut this team down. Look at his assists. Shut him down, and he shut the rest of the team down. They're always screaming, if you touch the pack, they're going to kill you, and all that stuff. But, it, I mean, I didn't listen too much about us. I think that was part of the game. But, of course, they did it more to us, because we were Swedish guys, and, I mean, the chicken sweets, and all the, all the things they were screaming at you. Right. The term chicken sweet, was that a term that bothered you, or you just said, screw it? I don't need to listen to that. <laughs> Not at all. I mean, I, I was just laughing at that because I thought it was so, that was so, so stupid. I mean, come out and play hockey, and if you want to play tough, play tough. It was like, like kids screaming at me. While Salming had success, became a star, and changed the league, the guy who he came over with, Inga Hammerstrom, he made less of a splash. Borea was the Swede who combined the very best of the Swedish and North American styles, skating and hitting and blocking shots. He's the plastic man, as Jerry would famously say. Inga, the guy who scored five goals that first night in Sweden, he didn't find as much of a home for his skills in the league. He'd go on to play five seasons in Toronto, then two in St. Louis, before returning home. He averaged 40 points a season, but for a guy with his skill and speed, that was just a shadow of his potential. To Jerry, Inga was just ahead of his time. And it was too bad because he was a talented guy. Believe me, he could skate, he could fly, and he could shoot. He wasn't exactly what you call a rough hockey player, but I never saw him, you know, avoid anything. Inga had all kinds of ability, and he could fly. 
and over in Sweden with the big ice surface, he really flew. Yeah. But when he got here, you know, they were hacking him and the whole bit. Well, that's not his game. Right. I don't say he was afraid. I would never say he'd be afraid. It's just that that's, that wasn't part of his game, hacking guys. Yeah. He was a finesse player. But if Inga had it been maybe six years later, when all this stuff were made it easier to get to the net and the whole bit, he would have been a real star, a real star. Boria, he agrees. Well, no, I, I agree fully with, with Jerry there. Like, you know, if he had, like, maybe came four or five years later, he would have done so good because with his skating ability and, and so strong and everything and could score goals and, and you know, and, and a really good playmaker too, he wanted to play just hockey. I could say he would have scored definitely 50 goals. Instead, Inga had his best years back in Sweden. Interestingly enough, though, he would go on to be an NHL scout and actually find the next great Swedish superstar, Peter Forsberg. So sure, he doesn't exactly turn the hockey world on its ear, but he plays a crucial role both as a player and as a scout in changing the game. In 1973, when Jerry McNamara returned to Sweden, he didn't have the country to himself anymore. The NHL and the rival WHA were both there, and they were soon in Finland and Czechoslovakia too. They may have been slow to embrace innovation, but once everyone was in on it, change washed across the league. Eventually, the inevitable happens. The country whose competition with Canada had helped launch all that change in the first place lifts the Iron Curtain. Jerry McNamara and Boreas Salming changed hockey. Just think about what would have happened if Jerry had just hopped on the next flight home, or if he hadn't been able to get down to Boreas Salming's locker room. In Jerry's mind, Boria opened the NHL's eyes. What you saw with Boria, you couldn't help but say, I want one of those. Where are we going to get one of those? We don't have them over here, so you have to go over there. And that's when the floodgates opened. And they start coming over in droves. And, and like I say, I, I don't care what anybody says. If they look back on it, he was the key. And it wasn't just the gradual flow of players that made it clear the door had been opened. It was the reception of the Toronto crowd during the Canada Cup in 1976 at Maple Leaf Gardens. Team Sweden is playing Canada. Salming is in a Team Sweden jersey, playing against the stars of Team Canada. All the fans in the building that night have every reason to boo him. And yet, what do they do? When his name is announced, they erupt into a standing ovation. Salming being introduced as one of the starting six for Sweden. And you can hear the applause here at Maple Leaf Gardens for Boria Salming. Many are standing. Just listen to them. Here they are. I 
says many are standing now. Everyone in the building is standing. Before you solving, he has scored two goals and two assists in the Canada Cup competition. That, that was fantastic, and I didn't understand it really because I thought it was going to be the other way. When I see it afterwards, and everybody else in Sweden too, because nobody knew what we were doing actually over here because now they can see every game, but that, at that time they didn't, didn't see any games we played. So what they did to me in people they didn't, in Sweden, they didn't understand at all. They, they couldn't believe it. And people was saying, like now when I'm meeting, they say, Just, I was crying. I was crying on, the, on TV because I saw it and I couldn't believe it. Uh, Borja stepped out on ice and he had his head down as he always did, shy, um, like expecting the worst almost. And the ov- ovation that he got was be- greater than any of the other, greater than Daryl Sittler got. It was, I can remember feeling um, the hair on the back of my neck go up. I was just so, I was I was pleased for him, but I was sort of proud for uh, Leaf Nation, for Toronto fans, for sticking up for the kid like that. But I think it was a great moment for the, uh, in, a, in a decade that didn't have many great moments for the Leafs. It was a great moment for uh, Toronto Maple Leaf hockey and Maple Leaf fans maybe more than than the hockey itself. Did you and Inga ever talk about the fact that you guys were breaking a barrier? The fact that you were you were changing the NHL? Like, or is that something you thought about at the time or at all? No. No, not at all. No. But you realize now that you did? Yeah. Well, now when people ask me about that because, you know, last... uh, I mean, every year, like, you know, they always ask me that question. And I said, yeah, I guess I did. But, I mean, or, or we did. But, no, never thought of, it, thought of that because, you know, uh, we came over to us to play hockey and then we loved to play hockey. And, and, and I mean, we had, the, like, you know, the best chance ever to, to play with Toronto Maple Leafs. And, you know, I realized after all those years that everybody who was training to Toronto Maple Leafs, everybody said, this was my dream when I was a kid. Then you understood, like, you know, how lucky I was to come to Toronto Maple Leafs. It was like a big family there, and uh, I loved the Maple Leaf Gardens with all the people, all the old guys who, you know, like, you know, working there, they've been working for 20 years there, and uh, it was like, you know, when I came back from Sweden, I was there every year. I come in, I was like, I was back to my family. I went in and I walked around all of them, see all the old guys, see, I mean, it, it was fantastic to have all those friends. Nowadays, Jerry, Boria, and Inga still try to keep in touch. Both of them were really good people. And and I have an affinity for both of them. And I feel like a, they're still my friends. And I hope uh, they think I'm their friend. So... And and they're friends with me, because that's how good they were. But it certainly changed my life. He called me. I was in the hospital for a short term. He called me when uh, when I got home, uh, just to wish me well. Um, he runs into people that know me and some relatives, and he always says, "Tell your uncle to call me." 
I want to talk to him. Just tell him to call me. But I haven't called him. I got his number someplace. It's in a pocket. I could look through my suits, and I got it there someplace. <laughs> but I don't want to bug him. Right. But but we're there. Yeah. Well, there's a kindred there, and and I'm sure he doesn't forget because he tells people, you know, about me. He knows who I am. Yeah. And what I did for him. Yeah. He never forgot. I was the beneficiary of that. I was the beneficiary of something historical. That's the way I feel about it now. At that time, I didn't feel that way. I felt good that he would think of me to go there because I'd never been to Europe before, and this was an adventure. And I like adventures, but as it turned out, it was much more than that. That was your October episode of Leafs Forever. We hope you liked it. We're a monthly podcast, so the next one will be out in November. Keep tuned to the team's Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook feeds for updates on that. And subscribe in your favorite podcast app to ensure you get it right away when it drops. The classic music in today's episode can be heard on the Blue and White Classic playlist, one of five official playlists of your Toronto Maple Leafs, available on Apple Music and the Leafs app. Today's episode was written by Paul Matthews and produced by Katie Jensen and Vocal Fry Studios for Maple Leafs Entertainment. Special thanks to the men at the center of the story, Boria Salmon and Jerry McNamara, for making themselves available to us. Also, a big, huge thanks to Stephen Cole. Make sure you check out his book, Hockey Night Fever, published by Penguin Random House and available wherever fine books are sold. I've always wanted to say that. Special thanks also to Mike Ferriman at MLSC, who always knows and has access to more of the history than anyone else I know and to Mike Zamatis and Nick Konorowski for digging through the archives again for us. Rate and review the podcast. We'd love to hear what you think. I am Scott Willits. Until next time, go Leafs go.